You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 64, Animal Consciousness. A few episodes ago, we talked about theories of consciousness, and if I recall correctly, there is a whole lot of disagreement about what consciousness is and how science should try to explain it. Yeah, that's, that's correct. So today we're going to talk about consciousness in animals, which has got to be even more uncertain. <laughs> yes, yes it is. <laughs> so why, why should we talk about animal consciousness if we know so little? Well, we want to do our best to understand animal consciousness because it's important morally. Um, so the things that we do as individuals and as a society have effects on lots of animals' lives. And there is fairly widespread agreement that treating animals a certain way is wrong only if they are conscious of some kind of suffering as a result of what we do. So could we conclude that non-conscious animals don't matter? Or plants? Right, right. Mm -hmm. So... They might matter because they're important to an ecosystem, uh, but that only means that they're important because their existence matters for other conscious animals, right? So let's take a chair as an example of something we're pretty sure isn't conscious. I think that's a pretty safe assumption. Yeah. So if you have a yeah. desk chair that you love and I destroy it, that's <laughs> wrong. But it's not wrong because I've wronged the chair, right? It's wrong because I've hurt you, the owner of the chair. So we'd say that your emotional welfare has intrinsic moral value, but the chair does not. Uh, the chair only has instrumental value. Well, so bringing this back to animals, there might be animals with instrumental value to humans or other conscious animals, but they are unconscious themselves. They're not intrinsically valuable. Right, yeah. The, like maybe bacteria, single-celled organisms. You know, most scholars think that they are unconscious, but they're absolutely crucial for the survival and flourishing of every conscious being on the planet. And, of course, we have laws to protect animals, right? <laughs> yes, we have some laws. What? Why are you laughing? Well, the laws are really inconsistent. Okay, tell me more. Yeah. So, the law breaks animals into three basic categories. Pets, wild animals, and animals for food. Uh, and even though we have no real reason to think that a cat is any more conscious than a pig, you can go to jail for doing things to a cat that regularly get done to pigs that we eat. What? Okay. Yeah, if you like put if you put yeah. a cat in a cage and keep it there all the time, you know that's illegal. But oh, pigs are raised pigs see. are raised in cages and get their tails Got chopped it. off without anesthetic. All that kind of stuff. Yikes! Okay, well, you mentioned there's no evidence that cats are more conscious than pigs. More conscious mm. than pigs. Does this mean that the capacity for consciousness is graded? Does it make sense to say that some species are more conscious than others? Well, certainly a lot of people think that, but not everybody. Uh, let's take an example from some trauma that can happen to an animal. Let's say breaking the upper leg bone, which is known as the femur. Okay, so lots of terrestrial animals have femurs. Now, suppose a mouse breaks a femur and a cow does too. So those animals are going to experience some suffering, say, but will it be the same amount? So for some people, because the cow is bigger and it's more complex, it's intuitive to think that the cow would suffer more for the equivalent event, like breaking a leg, than a mouse would. And a, a human might suffer even more? Right. So, we, we like to put ourselves on top, of course, but depending on what measures for size mm -hmm. and complexity you're using, elephants and some whales would suffer even more than humans for the same event. And so, what do you think is the problem with this view? Well, that'd be the biggest problem is there's really not much evidence for it. Um, there's not evidence against it either, really, but since we don't have access to subjective states of animals, 
we really don't know how much it hurts consciously. Okay, but we do have reactions to pain. Yes. And an animal will respond to a broken leg or in whatever way that resembles how humans would react to the same thing, right? Right, right. So in the, the literature, they call it a, a noxious stimulus. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Noxious. So a, nox, a noxious stimulus could be anything from nausea to electric shocks to physical trauma, anything that's supposed to hurt. Or a really bad smell. This is what I... Right, right, right. To me. <laughs> so, can we estimate how much an animal is in pain by its behavior? Yeah, we can and we should. Um, since we don't have access to their mental states, all we have are behaviors and physiology. So, yes, a pig or a cow or a mouse will try to avoid noxious stimuli, will mew and cry when they experience it, favor a harmed leg, and so on. But it, it gets complicated. I, I'm going to guess so because those are mammals, which are quite similar to humans, right? So how else, how might right. it be complicated? Right. Well, as you know, lots of reactions to noxious stimuli happen as reflex actions. Right. So when you put your hand on a hot surface, your hand pulls away before the information even reaches your brain. Um, and that's because your brain stem, that lower part of your, your, your nervous system, takes care of it because you need to react more quickly uh, than needed. And you don't have time really to wait for the brain to process and decide on a response. It could right. be harmful, right? Yeah, yeah. So you're you're conscious of touching the hot surface, but it's only after you've already reacted to it. It, it doesn't always feel that way, but your hand even moves before you're even conscious of the pain. Um, and just about everybody thinks that brainstem processing is unconscious. Okay. Right, so here's the thing. So we have responses to noxious stimuli, but some are conscious and some are unconscious in humans. Right. Mm. So, so sometimes mm -hmm. we use the word nociception for like all responses to noxious stimuli and might reserve the word pain for uh, nociception that's consciously felt. Right. For example, plants respond to lots of, lots of noxious stimuli, but they, uh, so they have nociception, but just about nobody mm. thinks that trees are conscious. Or experience pain. Right. Yeah. Right. So when we look at animals, we need to distinguish the conscious versus the unconscious behavioral responses. Yes. Yes. So, so the biologist Brian Key has a paper about ray-finned fish. Now, those are most fish. All, those are all the fish except for things like sharks and rays, uh, cart which are cartigilous fish. Anyway, he says that if you look at the repertoire of behaviors that ray-finned fish can engage in, they all fall into the category of responses that humans can do unconsciously. What? Yeah, so so if you harm a rat's paw, it will favor it. It'll lick it, try to use it less. Yep, I've definitely seen that. Yeah, Kim Kim used to be a rat runner. Mm-hmm. I've seen lots of rats' behaviors, including right. pain. That was my first undergraduate pain. thesis was in yeah. pain behavior in rats. Mm-hmm. So apparently a fish mm -hmm. will not. So if you harm a fish's fin, mm -hmm. it just keeps on acting like nothing happened. So what? the kinds of the th kinds of things fish do in response to noxious stimuli seem to be the kinds of things that humans do with reflexes, unconsciously. So, mm. he concludes I that see. fish have no deception, but no conscious pain, no suffering. Okay, wait. So, it's not wronging if it's like not harmful for a fish or wronging it to kill it or let it suffocate on the shore? Surely. According to this theory, that's, that's correct. Brian Key would say that the fish isn't suffering at all when you do that. But we don't know that for sure. Right. You know, fish do lots of things that give us pause, right? So, some scientists think that fish have personalities and they differ in how much they explore, how proactive versus reactive they are. 
even fish of the same species? Right. Yeah, like within a species, you get personality differences, right? So from an animal welfare perspective, how much confidence do we want to have in Key's theory? You know, how we want to build fish farms, for example, should probably be influenced by whether or not they can suffer. And it might be really expensive to make like a humane fish farm, and it'd be a big waste of money if they don't actually feel anything. Hmm. Tricky. So let's bring it back to graded consciousness. Are there some theories that say that it's an all or nothing thing? Yes. In fact, the most popular theory in the consciousness world, the global workspace theory, uh, basically says that a thought is either completely conscious or completely not. So just a refresher, global workplace, sorry, (laughs) I'm so used to saying workplace, global workspace theory says that there's this memory that can hold one interpretation of the world at a time, and it communicates this interpretation to lots of other brain processes, right? Right. We talked about that yeah. in the consciousness theories episode a couple back. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. and that interpretation held in this memory buffer is completely conscious. And the only thing you're conscious of and everything else is 100% unconscious. So there's no room for a semi-conscious thought. It's all or nothing. Not- Right, not in that theory, no. But in Mm -hmm. other theories, like integrated information theory, graded consciousness is built right into the theory. The more units are connected in the right way, the more conscious the whole system is. So is that a benefit of integrated information theory? It is if consciousness, graded consciousness actually exists. (laughs) Well, it seems like it does. When a person is undergoing anesthesia, for example, they experience losing consciousness gradually. Like you hear like, countdown from 10, 10, 9, you're out, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, and the anesthesiologists talk about levels of levels of consciousness. It's part of their practice, mm-hmm. and sometimes mm-hmm. we we have experiences where we say we're barely conscious of something, or we're only paying partial attention to it. You know, so we have those yeah. kind of experiences. But global workspace theory has no explanation for that, as far as I know, it doesn't. Hmm. So okay, so looking at the major theories of consciousness, what do they predict about animal consciousness? Right. So for global workspace theory, there are specific information processing requirements. Um, And to see if animals have them, we have to look for brain analogs in those species, like brain structure analogs. Mm -hmm. So all mammals have a cortex, which is thought to be the location of the global workspace. Birds don't, but they have another structure, the pallium, that we think might serve a similar function. So maybe birds are conscious. The more different it is from human brains, the less confident we get, right? Yeah, it's a mess. Like a fruit fly, you know, and a fruit fly is more different from a tarantula than a human is from a cow in terms of brain anatomy. Yeah, huge diversity. Right. So just talking about animal consciousness is is covering up a lot of mm, a lot of diver- like neural diversity there. Now, if consciousness, uh, cortical space, it's covering a lot of neuron space. I don't know. Just yeah. To make a joke. <laughs> Um, so if consciousness happens in the midbrain, not in the cortex, then insects are more likely to be cautious, some argue, because they have brain structures that perform midbrain-like functions. Anyway, I don't want to go through each theory, but suffice it to say that all the major theories predict that lots of animals are conscious. There are some scholars, mostly philosophers, who either claim that non-human animals aren't conscious, or they make statements that seem to indicate that they wouldn't be. Like what? Oh, like... Uh, something's required for consciousness that animals don't have, like culture or language or something. Wow. Okay. But people have some strong views on which animals are conscious and which aren't, don't they? Yeah, they do for some animals, right? Most people in today's industrialized nations believe dogs are conscious and 
most people think that an amoeba isn't conscious, but uh, for just about everybody, there's going to be some animal in the middle where you're not too sure. Earthworms, mosquitoes, you know. Also, people are biased to think that the animals they want to eat aren't conscious. Yeah, yes, I yeah, I, I believe that. <laughs> so when one study randomly gave people in the grocery store free cashews or beef jerky, so they had two groups, the cashew group and the beef jerky group, and then they asked them about their thoughts about the feelings of cows. And the beef jerky eaters, even though they were randomly selected, reported on average that they thought cows had less capacity for suffering than the people who were randomly given cashews. Oh, my gosh. So people, people, <laughs> people also tend to think that the animals we eat have less mental capacity than animals uh, we don't eat that are of a similar size and complexity. So, for example, like dogs versus pigs. It sounds a lot like cognitive dissonance. Yeah, probably. You know, So cognitive dissonance, everybody, is when you have conflicting beliefs or when your behavior does not match your beliefs and it causes uh, an uncomfortable feeling called dissonance. And to resolve the dissonance, people sometimes change their behaviors, but sometimes they'll change their beliefs to make them more in line with the way they want to act. Yeah, and in psychology, we have something called a null hypothesis, and that's the idea that nothing is happening. So when a study is significant, it's arguing that the null hypothesis is likely false. But what the null hypothesis, what what you know, what is the null hypothesis when you're asking about animal consciousness? Is it that animals are not conscious until we have a good evidence to say that they are? Yeah, that is a deep, unanswered question, right? It's kind <laughs> of like where where's the burden of proof? So. Mm. Do we assume con animals are unconscious until proven otherwise, or do we assume they're conscious until proven otherwise? Uh, so, yeah, psychologists are usually looking for, like, some effect. And the null hypothesis is easy to come up with, usually. There's no effect. But for animal consciousness, mm. we have conflicting intuitions. On the one hand, we might say, well, there's no reason to anthropomorphize animals too much. And, you know, uh, we know that we're likely to do that. So we should assume that animals don't have any higher-level mental processes uh, unless we can't find uh, behaviors that, well, basically, if you can explain it with simpler processes without invoking higher level stuff, you should. And 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 we need to reserve higher level capacities for the animals where we know for sure that it's true. Yeah, that makes sense. But at the same time, all animals come from the same evolutionary tree, right? And we all, like, there's a lot of shared brain physiology as well as behavior. So isn't it simpler to assume that we are all the same until there's evidence to the contrary? Exactly. Right. That's the conflicting intuition, mm -hmm. right? Humans mm -hmm. broke off from chimps about five or six million years ago. So when did consciousness evolve? Mm -hmm. The longer ago it evolved, the more species would probably have it, right? And mm -hmm. that's ignoring convergent evolution, which might have happened with consciousness and the octopus. We'll talk about that later. Uh, anyway, scientists differ on what our default position should be. And there's no What's interesting, there's no scientific solution to this question, right? It, it's not, it's a values question. It's uh, any, and there are mm. rational reasons for both. So we're kind of stuck. Okay, but there's another way to look at it. Most features of animals have some kind of metabolic cost. Okay, right, mm -hmm. right. And metabolic costs wind up being reproductive costs at evolution. So, for mm -hmm. example, the peacock tail, right, if we think about that, has a high reproductive cost. It takes a lot of nutrition to maintain it. It makes it more vulnerable to predators and so on. But in the end, it's worth it because we know that peahens like it so much. The, the peacock sexy. with the, yeah, the grandest tail is more likely to woo and successfully reproduce with a peahen. So, when we're thinking about consciousness, 
Presumably, it takes some metabolic or reproductive cost to build the brain machinery to make that happen. And animals that don't need consciousness wouldn't have it because if it wasn't worth it, it would not arise or wouldn't last long as a species evolves. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. Um, what's the what's the metabolic cost or the reproductive cost of consciousness? And we might ask, mm. what function consciousness serves? Like, what what does consciousness offer an, uh, an organism to help it survive and reproduce? And then we can look at species that would benefit from having that function. And this could add evidence to our ideas about which species are conscious. Unfortunately, there is little agreement on what consciousness is for. Really? Yeah. So, we know that in humans anyway, consciousness seems to accompany several kinds of thinking. But experts still disagree about whether consciousness is necessary for those things. Some prominent scholars even think consciousness has no function at all. If anybody doubts this, let's, I'm going to talk a little bit about artificial intelligence. So, there are billions of dollars in this field trying to make smart machines, and almost nobody is trying to make them conscious. And hmm. why? Because it doesn't seem necessary for anything we'd want the AI to do, right? You want to make an AI that does planning, medical diagnosis, vision, talking, reasoning, fraud detection. We can think of algorithms that might accomplish these, these tasks, but consciousness doesn't seem to be a necessary part for any of them, hmm. right? So, it's not like, like memory is totally different. There are many things we know we can't get AIs to do without memory or without look ahead or, or what, there's all kinds of stuff, but there's nothing like that for consciousness. So, there are a few people trying to implement consciousness on machines, but they're only doing it because they care about consciousness itself. It doesn't seem to be required for anything. Okay, so that means if we don't know the function, we can't necessarily narrow our pool of species? Right. Not without much conf confidence, anyway. So, the mm -hmm. reproductive cost idea is really good, and we're still working on what the brain needs for consciousness to happen. But we don't know how much of the machinery... The, like the brain machinery that makes consciousness is there only for consciousness and how much is used for other things, right? So, it might be that consciousness comes more or less free, piggybacking on other adaptations, in which case there would be basically a negligible metabolic and reproductive cost for having consciousness. We just don't know. Right. So, we need some other way to estimate consciousness. How about intelligence? Yeah, that's the most common one. We have a strong intuition that smarter beings are somehow more conscious than less intelligent beings. And this is part of the graded consciousness idea we talked about above. I guess one issue is that it's hard to compare intelligence across species because, yeah. as we know, intelligence is multiply defined anyway, right? Right. You, yes, that's absolutely right. So, what's smarter, a pig or a parrot, right? They do mm. very different things. Um, sometimes we look for traits that might be useful across species, like how fast they learn, how well they problem solve and remember and reason, but it's still very hard. An analogy I like is asking, what's a better vehicle, a race car or a tractor? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, they're both that. so mm -hmm. good at their own jobs and it's, you know, mm -hmm. uh, is it? Yeah, is it, fair, is it, but I think we can be pretty sure that a monkey is smarter than a worm. Yeah, right? so I for mean, like really different, yeah. yeah, for very, very distant species, even if we have a high uncertainty for closed species, that is pretty good, right? Um, another estimate is brain size, which correlates pretty well with our intuitions about how smart different species are. But it seems to make no, no sense within a species, though. <laughs> right, that's right. Yeah, because men have bigger brains than women do, 
but it would be silly for me to think as men as being more conscious, right? Right. It, ha. Right. In fact, mm-hmm. women are more sensitive to pain than men are, right? So, like, it, it, it we would have picked up because there are studies you could do of consciousness, right? And it, and and there are really aren't gender differences usually. Um, mm-hmm. But and in, in one case for pain, the uh, women are more sensitive. So the idea only holds water for between species comparisons. Well, what about the brain body ratio? Yes, that's good. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. So th- some people, did, some people, yeah, and cephalization quotient is a is one of the measures of brain body ratio. Some people mm-hmm. don't like this raw brain size or related measures like neuron counts or cortical neuron counts because it it predicts that elephants and whales are more conscious than human beings. Well, they might be. Yeah, they might be. Uh, you know, brain body ratio is a good one if you're really gung ho on putting humans on top. <laughs> as, yeah, as it's, usual, right? Yeah, yeah, it's very it's self serving. Some people, but like whether they are conscious of it or not, they think. Well, if, if it means that w- elephants are more conscious than humans, then it's a it's a crappy theory. But it is just self serving. Well, do some scholars just throw up their hands and say all animals are equally conscious? Yeah, some people do. There's a philosopher named Tim Bain who holds this view, and it sounds simpler, right? Just we're all equally conscious, mm. uh, but one still might get less confident when we get to like bacteria and plants. Like where do we draw the line when looking at species complexity to say that at this particular point, things are just as conscious as human beings, like a virus, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, there's no, mm-hmm. nothing even resembling a mental process. Right. So you still have to mm-hmm. draw, find a line somewhere. Draw a line in the sand. Yeah. I see you, you kind of need some criteria to make the dividing line, even if it's a sharp one. Yeah. So the sharp, the sharpness mm-hmm. doesn't help you, if you don't know where on what criteria to draw the line. So finally, we have the idea that simpler animals might be even more conscious than complex ones. No. <laughs> Come on. I don't know if pe- I don't know if people actually believe it, but they have written about it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I call it the Tinkerbell theory. Uh, you know Tinkerbell from Peter Pan. Yeah. So in the stage directions for the original play, Peter Pan, the author Barry says that Tinkerbell is too small to have more than one feeling at a time. And the movie, I think, captures this really well. She gets like insanely furious and there's just no subtlety, nothing. And the idea that a complex creature can suffer, but they experience a whole complex of things that might attenuate Mm. the suffering. And, you know, Mm. we can be, we can appreciate other things and we can, you know, uh, but maybe a snail's suffering is like cosmically unimaginably big. If you cut a snail in half, it's like worse than cutting a finger or something. Huh. But our capacity for other thoughts sometimes make the suffering worse, not better. Right. So you can use meditation and distraction and visualization stuff to alleviate suffering to some extent. And maybe snails can't do that. But we also have anxiety. Well, as a runner, if I broke my leg, the suffering would be more than just the pain because I'd be worried about not being able to do something I love in the future. Yeah, so it cuts both ways, right? Like, so all of our extra memory and forecasting and ever can make pain and suffering worse, and it can make it better. So it's hard to know um, how seriously to take this Tinkerbell theory idea. Okay, let's talk about bugs. Bugs, and this is right? A, yeah, yeah. An homage to my colleagues here at Carleton University in the Department of Biology. We have several that study. Did you know insects and insect cognition? So I think it's it's about time that we focus on some Yes, bugs. and they do not need to ask for ethics approval. No. <laughs> right. So this is Why, like, this right? is part of like taking mm-hmm. this seriously. I mean food is of course a bigger mm-hmm. deal than research ethics, but you know 
research ethics has to make decisions on what kind of animals are conscious. You know, it, it re mm-hmm. they recently added octopus, but um, but yeah, you could do anything you want to bugs. Um, mm-hmm. No, without without you don't even have to tell anybody. <laughs> even though yep. they're incredibly diverse. So, all right, what are bugs? Bugs are not a scientific category. That's a linguistic category. It includes insects, worms, creepy crawlies, spiders, aphids. It's incredibly diverse, of course, but generally they're of low intelligence and they're invertebrates. But about 29% of researchers think that they're conscious. Wow, that's more than I would have thought. Uh, yeah, uh, according to a 2018 study of people at a consciousness conference. Um, and bug consciousness is actually really important. Well, why is that? Well, because so many of them die in the, proce- the process of creating our food. Mm, and some cultures even eat bugs. Yeah, there's a, and there's a small movement to try to get Western cultures to eat more bugs. Um, raising insects is better for the environment than raising mammals per gram of protein. The problem is that bugs are so small. So, for example, to get the same edible mass of a cow, you need to kill over 170,000 crickets. Yeah, so my colleague, Dr. Sue Bertram, she works with crickets, and she's actually partnering up with the Canadian Space Agency to explore whether we can send crickets to Mars as a food source. Pretty cool, hey? Isn't that wild? Do you know if she's ever talked about the ethical considerations of this? I don't. I don't. But um, it makes me think I should. I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it's uh, you know, uh, it, like mm-hmm. Tim Bain is not a dummy. He thinks all animals are equally conscious, right? So if you have to kill 170,000 beings that are as conscious as human beings to get the meat of a cow, mm-hmm. maybe we should just eat a cow, right? Anyway, <laughs> we have the same issue with chickens, yeah. right? As we'll see, it takes hundreds of chickens to make up the meat of a single cow, right? So if we're looking at the number of creatures being killed, for example, we really better hope insects are not conscious. Well, I got to ask, do you eat bugs? Mm, I do not, not intentionally, like but it, it is important yeah. to note that we kill fa- cowless bugs in the process of making non-bug food. So, mm. to make vegetables and grains, we use pesticides, and even organic farming kills lots of bugs in the harvesting process. And also, like, voles and mice and, like, mm. mi- j- like harvesting vegetables kills animals. Like, there's just no doubt about that. It's very hard to estimate how many, but it's a lot. If we eat meat, if we're eating meat, those animals, of course, die. But, of course, those had to be fed, usually plant products that were produced in the same way. Right. So, if insects are conscious. Right. If insects are conscious and can suffer, mm -hmm. it's hard to know how we can even eat without causing enormous suffering. Okay. So, what is the evidence? Well, they do respond to painkillers, analgesics, Mm -hmm. um, but those do lots of things. I mean, everything responds to analgesics, which is interesting. <laughs> but those mm-hmm. those also do lots of things in addition to re- to reducing conscious pain. So we take it because mm-hmm. we want to hurt less. But they slow cell communication. They reduce stress, which can be conscious or unconscious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might be that painkillers cause this uh, reduction in pain, suffering experiences because of downstream effects of reduced cell communication or whatever, which could mean that the fact that painkillers change behavior in a species like a cricket or something does not doesn't prove that they're conscious what about crustaceans yeah crab and shrimp they do have central brains and um they groom injured body parts like they favor them and stuff which as we've noted most fish do not anything else we should know about fish while we're on the topic uh yeah sure so when you harm a fish uh so when they're 
injured, right? They react with less fear to novel objects. Hmm. So um, they can measure like, uh, they tend to be afraid of new things and you can measure mm-hmm. that their response. So when they're hurt, they, they don't have as much fear of novel objects, which suggests, this is one interpretation, that pain is taking up some of their attention, right? They're hurting, so they have less mental resource to do other things. Um, but heart, fish heart rates don't increase when they're handled. <laughs> Neither do frogs. So if you pick up a lizard or a rat, it will, its heart rate will increase with stress when you pick it up. But frogs and fish don't, right? Hmm. Anyway, we don't know, but about 63% of researchers think fish are conscious. And that's about uh, twice as many as think bugs are conscious. Yeah. That yeah. Where that's about? So what about mm-hmm. birds? Birds are an interesting case because they have evolutionary reasons to have small brains because they need to be light because they fly. So this is one of the, this is one of the potential problems with brain size or even encephalization quotient because they have a much stronger, uh, adaptive, like evolutionary pressure to have a small brain. So they might be doing a lot with a little, but anyway, as we mentioned, they don't have a cortex, but they have a pallium. And this I believe is analogous to the cortex, right? That outer strip of tissue of the of the brain, right? Yeah, a lot of people Humans. think that it's serving similar functions. Um, mm-hmm. And if the cortex is important for consciousness, then the mere existence of the bird pallium is evidence in favor of bird consciousness. And birds' brain hemispheres are disconnected. Oh, right. right? They have no corpus. The no and corpus, corpus callosum. Which Clo- connects the brain Closum. hemispheres. Yeah, callosum. Mm-hmm. Uh, it connects it in mammals, but it doesn't exist in birds. So pigeons that are trained with one eye shut can't transfer learning for input into the other eye. So maybe there are two consciousnesses in a bird brain with two disconnected Perhaps. hemispheres. Perhaps. So anyway, the most important bird morally is the chicken because we eat so many of them and they're so small. Um, and interestingly, most animal welfare activity is focused on chickens because small changes in how we raise them can have the biggest effect on animal welfare. If chickens are conscious. Right, if, and we don't know for sure. Okay, well, what about non-human mammals? Right, so all mammals have a cortex and a thalamus, thought by many to be important brain structures for consciousness. And mammals have versions of all human brain structures. So neuroscientists talk about nine or hundred or so anatomical features of human brains. And even if the mouse has most of these, um, and sorry, and even the mouse has most of these, even though it's a thousand times smaller. Yeah. And behaviorally, they seem to act as though they're conscious in almost every way. Um, but how many of those reactions are unconscious? We just don't know. We can't get in their heads. Um, in, in one experiment I read about, they severed uh, the spinal cord from the rat's brain and they still engaged in many appropriate pain-related behaviors, even though Although the, they were fairly brittle. Hmm. This stuff dovetails nicely with the idea that consciousness for dealing is for dealing with new situations. So what about dolphins and whales? They're an interesting case, in part because they can't change their facial expression. And as humans, we use facial expression as a window into people's inner lives all day. So it's it when you look at an insect or a dolphin or something uh, dolphins look like they're smiling so people tend to think that they're happy it's kind of ridiculous but huh. <laughs> they yeah. can't change their it's... facial expression at all <laughs> even if they're miserable mm. they just look like they're smiling <laughs> um and and you know many land mammals share many of our facial expressions so people can t- 
tell, even in a dog that's got like a, it's angry face versus it's sort of happy, smiley face, which is open mouth, but no teeth. Mm-hmm. So it's really easy for everybody to underestimate the inner lives of marine mammals. Uh, and they're really understudied uh, because studying dolphins and even more so for whales is fraught with ethical and practical difficulties. Like, can you imagine trying to get like a dolphin lab at Carlton? Like it would just oh, be, insa- it'd yeah. be insane, right? No. Um, but, uh, one interesting anecdote is that the first dolphin that was anesthetized died because it, it didn't breathe. What? Yeah. So breathing, as every listener knows, is an automatic process in land mammals. And we can take conscious control of it when we want to. We can engage in deep breathing. We can hold our breath. We can, we have to do it to talk. Uh, and heartbeat is different, right? So for the most part, we can't ever control our heartbeat directly. It's totally unconscious. But anyway, it appears that breathing is always a controlled process in dolphins. And because controlled processes are often conscious, we see that as some supporting evidence. So when it was anesthetized, it was unconscious. Therefore, it couldn't control its breathing. Therefore, it didn't breathe. Therefore, it died. That's sort of the reasoning. Okay, wait. So this means that every time you anesthetize a dolphin, it will die? They have to, I, well, I, I guess they have to put it on artificial respiration, but you can't, yeah. you can't just anesthetize. If they will die, if you don't do something about it. Wow. For general yeah. anesthetic. Yeah. So is it conscious? Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Uh, what about one of my favorite animals? The octopus. Everybody's favorite animal, the octopus, yeah. a resident alien species. So the octopus nervous system is so different from ours um, that not only might it have consciousness, but it might have many. It might have many in one octopus. Hmm. Is it because each arm has its own neural system? Yeah. So the arms, the brain, and the visual system work relatively independently of one another. They have like few connections. So an arm might detect a crab and for- actually formulate a plan to capture it without any consultation from the brain. Um, and, and, and interestingly, if you cut off an arm, it will, it will look for food and capture it all on its own. Can't octopuses unscrew jars and stuff? Like They're very... Yes, they can. They are clever. Mm -hmm. But this is something you don't hear about a lot in the news. They they can learn to do these things, but they require lots and lots of learning. Hmm. Right? So humans can often learn to do something by watching it once, but it it takes a long time for octopuses to learn how to do stuff. Oh, I did not know that. So, but we shouldn't fall into the trap of intelligence equals consciousness anyway, right? As we've already... Yeah, yeah. So another another interesting thing about the octopus, it has a no pain receptors for heat. So if you burn an octopus, it doesn't register what? anything. Yeah. Well, <gasps> I guess there's. I guess there's no register. need for worrying about burns in the ocean, right? There's no. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. No, and this is, wow. And this is interesting. Cool. Like you think about conscious and unconscious, but there's also what is it yeah. capable of being conscious of? So like a loggerhead mm. turtle can sense the Earth's magnetic field. Um, mm. You know, and, you know, they might conclude we're not conscious because we can't detect that, right? <laughs> but we're just, pe- different animals have a different sensory world, you know? Uh, and if they're conscious, they would have a different sense there. Um, so, if it turns out that octopuses are conscious, this could be a big deal because we split from them in evolution about 600 million years ago. And mm. that was when we were all a bunch of little flat worms. So, if they're conscious, if if our last common ancestor was conscious, then that means a whole lot of species mm. on Earth are conscious, right? Or it could be convergent evolution. Yes, that's the yeah. other possibility. They we they might have evolved later, uh, and it seems that intelligence was convergent. 
Oh, because the flatworm wasn't very smart. Yeah, so the octopus is smart, we're smart. We both came from the flatworm, so the intelligence must have evolved later, and that would be convergent mm-hmm. evolution. So they might have arose independently in both branches of uh, the evolutionary mm-hmm. tree. There's so much we don't know. Yeah. What about non-human primates? So primate bodies and perceptual mm-hmm. systems mean we can put them in experimental situations very similar to the ones we put humans in, and unlike a whale, right? So mm. when we put them in consciousness-related experiments, they tend to perform a lot like humans. Like what? Well, they don't multitask very well, right? They have, <laughs> they, they have dual task interference. They have limited attention, you know, stuff like that. I was going to say like a, a man. Anyway, they uh, just don't have language, right? Right. They can't and talk. What about the mirror test? I was just talking about this with my colleague Ethan today. The mirror yeah, test. Yeah, oh, everyone cool talks about thing. the mirror test. I, I, love I, I don't. Test. I don't love the mirror test. I'm not a fan of the mirror mm. test I, because I think what? it's over. I think it's overinterpreted. I think it's very unclear mm. what it actually indicates. Well, so let, I'm interested say to hear. Yeah, let's talk about it because I mean, because Ethan had some something interesting to say. So I want to see if you say the same thing. Anyway, go ahead. Mm-hmm. So experimenters put a bit of paint or something on the head of an animal, and then they give them access to a mirror. And if the animal reacts to investigate the paint by touching itself. Right? If it sort of understands what's happening with the mirror, uh, we think it recognized itself in the mirror. Um, and unfortunately, many people interpret this as a test of consciousness. Okay, what do you mean by unfortunately? Well, I mean, like, all living things need to be able to distinguish themselves from their environment in some way or other, just to survive. Right? So, mm. like the octopus, their arms taste each other, and that's how they know they're from the same body. Tree roots... <laughs> Tree roots touch each other underground and they do much the same thing. They, tree roots can tell mm. which other trees are related to them and which ones are huh. the same tree. So, you know, like, what's the big deal about a mirror? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Fair. So, let's talk, like, which creatures pass the mirror test? Yeah. So, adult humans, of course, and chimps, but not monkeys and not young children. And many people with schizophrenia don't pass it, right? So. Mm. If we mm-hmm. interpret the mirror test as a consciousness test, we're in the weird position to say that chimps are conscious, but young human children and people with schizophrenia are not. <laughs> okay, well, I guess the idea is that you're recognizing yourself in the mirror, right? That's the whole point of it. It's like, oh, that's me, right? Right, and self-concept is not the same as consciousness. Mm, right. You know, so like, let's think when you're engrossed in a movie, you're not thinking about yourself, but you're certainly conscious. You're conscious of the movie. You're just mm-hmm. not thinking about yourself. Likewise, it seems like we should be able to think about ourselves unconsciously, right? When you're when you're doing unconscious processing, you can probably reason about oneself. So lots of people, including me, don't find the mirror test a very convincing piece of evidence. But did you did you want to talk about what your friend thinks? Of it? Well, yeah. So what he was saying is it really depends on the stimulus, right? So I think what he told me was that apparently if you do it to dogs, if you put a little mark on a dog's face or whatever, it won't recognize itself or it won't you know, pass mm-hmm. the mirror test. But if you use its own smell, it will. So it's really bound by the sensory um, modality that's most dominant for a given species. So maybe young human children, I don't know, maybe it's not visual. I don't know. Yeah. And, anyway, and this yeah. this brings, I mean, there are, there are the, the history of this test is full of terrible experiments. So, um, yeah. like Franz der Waal in his, in his recent book talks about how they tried to do it with elephants, and it turns out they hadn't positioned the mirror so that the elephant could even see the dot. Oh, God. And okay. they wrote it up right. and published, you know, tried to publish it or whatever. I mean, it's just like, 
<laughs> anyway, but but my oh, point boy. is that, like, the mirror test, it's really, I don't think it's clear what we can it's conclude about. Yeah, what what is it, can, what do we, what mm -hmm. can we say about the mind of a species that we put in the mirror test? I don't think that's clear. Fair enough. Well, I thought human consciousness was full of uncertainty, but with animals, we're really in the dark. Yes, unfortunately, that is absolutely correct. So, what do we do with all this uncertainty? What do you mean? Like, with all that you've studied about it, what have you concluded? Uh, I, I eat less chicken. <laughs> Minding the Brain is edited by Mike Contos and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music for Minding the Brain is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.